Welcome to the latest episode of our podcast series for financial advisors. Today's episode is The Second Act. Barron's Top 100 Advisor shares her advice on scale, succession, and success. It's a conversation with Erin Botsford, author, founder, and CEO of the Advisor Authority. I'm Mindy Diamond, and this is Mindy Diamond on Independence. This podcast is available on our website, diamond-consultants.com, as well as Apple Podcasts and other major podcast platforms. If you are not already a subscriber and want to be notified of new show releases, please subscribe right on your favorite podcast platform or on the episode page on our website. For Apple Podcast users, I'd be grateful if you'd give the show a review. Your input helps us to make the series better and alerts other advisors like you who may find the content to be relevant. And while you're at it, if you know others who are considering change or simply looking to learn more about the industry landscape, please feel free to share this episode or the series widely. Ask any advisor what their why is, and you'll often hear about a unique personal experience that propelled the mission of helping others manage their financial lives. For Erin Botsford, that mission was driven by misfortune and tragedy, which led her to realize that money provided people with choices. It was a mission to become a financial advisor that started at zero, with hard work and perseverance driving her seven days a week. Over time, she realized that others were growing far faster and seemingly easier than she was able to. Yet even with various coaches and mentors, Erin was having difficulty breaking through. But it was a chance meeting with a successful advisor named Paul that she credits for changing everything. Through careful observation, Erin learned how to not only grow her business, but turn it into a completely self-sustaining one, which allowed her to step away from the daily activities with confidence. Erin built her LPL-affiliated Dallas firm, Botsford Financial Group, and in 2018, the firm became the first major M&A transaction by now serial acquirer Merit Financial Group, a hybrid RIA in Atlanta, Georgia. That paved the way for this financial advisor, who received numerous industry accolades, including multiple Barron's Top 100 honors, to start on her second act. That is, as the founder and CEO of the Advisor Authority, and sharing her formula for success through the Elite Advisor Success System. Erin's also an accomplished author and frequent speaker at many of the industry's leading events for wealth management, and she's found a new mission in her work with the Ebenezer Foundation and other African orphanages. In this episode, Erin shares her incredible backstory with my partner, Lewis Diamond. They talk about the wall she found herself hitting as a financial advisor and how she got around it. Plus, she shares advice for advisors at all levels on how to scale, plan for succession, and grow without working 24-7. So let's get to it. Erin, thank you for coming on today and telling us about yourself and your story. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Very good. So let's jump in. Can you just tell us how you found your way to being a financial advisor in the first place and in general, just tell us about yourself? Yeah, I had kind of a tragic childhood and my dad died when I was 11 and I was involved in a very bad car accident when I was 16 and I had a lot of things going against me, but I had this young man who asked me to marry him. His name was Bob Botsford and he was a military pilot and we moved a lot around. He was a military officer. It took me 11 years and seven colleges to graduate and I only went to night school. So not having a lot of confidence, we actually moved back to the United States from Germany in 1988. And I walked into a stock brokerage firm looking for a job as a secretary. And this very nice man said, hey, Aaron, I'm going to make you a stockbroker. And I was like, what is that? I mean, I didn't know the difference between a stock, a bond. I'd never heard of the word mutual fund, but guess what? I was a stockbroker. So I started in March of 89. And that was the beginning of the journey. 
What an interesting start. Definitely wasn't what I was expecting, but it seems like you've made your own luck, right? You didn't start with an inherited business. It sounds like you didn't grow up with a bunch of money and a silver spoon. You just kind of found your way into the industry and the rest seems to be history. So really excited to keep moving forward and learning about how you actually did learn about the stock market and become one of the industry's leading advisors. So you started your career as a broker at the once regional firm, AG Edwards, which we've heard was a terrific place to work, and then decided to go independent with Lincoln Financial and FSC, maybe some other firms, and ultimately LPL Financial. Can you take us through your career arc and your journey and how you even came to be an independent advisor in the first place? Sure. I loved my time at AG Edwards and it was very difficult to leave. It was a wonderful place. But at the time, I'll just give you the thing that sent me over the edge. I was given the opportunity right after I moved to Dallas, Texas, I was given the opportunity to get in front of 900 people being offered early retirement from a big company. And I mean, me, I'm a young girl. I was probably in my early thirties. That was just an amazing opportunity. And so I gave three seminars and I had 300 people at each seminar. And they were lined up around the building to schedule appointments with me. Well, my branch manager at the time, while he was very nice and kind and all of that, he offered me absolutely no support. So I was sharing one assistant with four other stockbrokers. And it was like the opportunity of a lifetime. And I didn't have the resources to capitalize on it. So enlisted my husband, who at the time was an airline pilot. I'd call him up and I'd say, these people have 900,000, give them plan A. And these people have 700,000, give them plan B. And we were working day and night, day and night. And it was interesting that over a three-month period that year, I brought in $25 million, which was amazing, especially for a young girl, new in the business. It was awesome. But when the reality sank in, it turns out that this company actually paid out $792 million. And here I was, I literally had the implied endorsement of the company, but I didn't have the support staff, the resources to capitalize on it. And it was kind of my Scarlett O'Hara moment. It was like, as God is my witness, I'm never going to be put in this position again. And I realized that I was at the mercy of them providing me support, and I didn't like that. And so I was actually recruited by Lincoln, which was another place that was a wonderful, wonderful place to be. And they made me a sort of a middle manager. So they said, Aaron, we want you to keep up your level of production, but we also want you to lead, guide, motivate, and train all of these other insurance guys and teach them how to sell investments. And so I did that for a very, very long time. And that was a wonderful place in my journey. Unfortunately, they had hired somebody from another firm, a big wirehouse firm, and he kind of laid out an edict and he said, okay, from tomorrow on, everybody has to do at least 35% of all your business has to be in Lincoln manufactured products. And I'm thinking, geez, by that time I was doing three or $4 million a year in business. I'm thinking, I don't even think that that's legal. I don't know. So unfortunately for Lincoln, they lost quite a number of the top producers because that was just an untenable position. When was this approximately? I started with Lincoln in 95 and I was there at least 11 years. So let's call it 2006 or seven, something okay. like that. And I wish that that man hadn't shown up because everything else in my journey at Lincoln was just amazing. And I still am very good friends with a lot of the people there. I just loved my time there, but it was an untenable proposition. And so I had to move on. So I ended up, I made a couple of other stops. All of them I consider somewhat I don't want to say mistakes because I think everything happens for a purpose. For instance, I ended up going at one point to a very, very small broker dealer out of Iowa. And it was at that broker dealer, there was not a lot of compliance. Maybe that's a bad thing because I think they went under, I don't know, later on. But they made it very easy for me to write my first book. My first book was called The Big Retirement Risk, Running Out of Money Before You Run Out of Time. And so from a compliance standpoint, there was one compliance guy and he pretty much signed off on my book. And I had tried to write a book at the other places and compliance made it a little bit more difficult. So again, I think of my life, everything happens for a reason. And so all these little stops along the way all added to the wonderment of my journey. And I count it all good. Every single thing that happened, both good and bad, I count it all for good. I love it. So a couple of, of just follow-up questions from what you said. First off, I'd love to just learn, I'm sure the audience would too. So as a 
very young and entry-level broker or advisor, how did you even get in front of that large company opportunity? What was your secret to kind of getting started? Because a lot of folks obviously struggle to make it in the industry, especially at a young age. Well, Lewis, again, I have to take it back a little ways. And first of all, to get in front of that many people, I had to be already adept at public speaking. So where did I get that training? Well, I'll go back to the days we were living in Bitburg, Germany from 85 to 88. And before this career, I always ended up working in the title insurance business. So I followed Bob's career around and I could go in and be a secretary at a title insurance company. So as a result, I knew a whole lot about real estate. So we get over to Germany, and at the time, every GI, everybody that's stationed in Germany, when they come back to the United States, they wanted to use their VA benefits to buy homes with no money down. And so I would find myself at the officer's club every Friday night, and I had a piece of paper at the back of a napkin, and these guys are coming up to me, Aaron, I know you know a lot about real estate. Can you help me with this VA benefit, no money down? On the back of a napkin, I'd write out all this stuff for them. So one day, one girl came up to me. She said, Aaron, you know so much about real estate. You really ought to offer a class. And I'm like, oh, okay. I've never taught a class, never thought about that, but I had not a lot to do. They didn't allow you to work on the economy in Germany back then, so I went to the office of morale, welfare, and recreation. I said, I'd like to offer a class. And the lady goes, okay. I said, I want to teach you how to buy a house when you go back to the States. And she goes, okay. She says, I'll put you in the catalog right between cake decorating and bowling or something. And so so they offered all kinds of classes to military people. And so then she said some words that changed my life forever as well. And she said, so how much are you going to charge for the class? And I said, oh, nothing. I'm just a stay-at-home wife. I don't want to charge for the class. I want it to be free. She says, well, Aaron, let me tell you something. If you don't charge anything for the class, nobody will show up. Hmm. People value what they pay for. So long story short is I started in 1987, January 22nd, 1987. There's a whole story behind that. But I ended up... <laughs> I had 22 people show up for my first class and I ended up going to all these 17 bases all over Yusefi to teach this class. I was written up in Armed Forces, Armed Force Times. I was given a television show. So, I mean, with my tiny little knowledge, it gave me the ability to be equipped to speak in front of people. Now, the challenge, Lewis, was in our industry, I was relatively new to the business. So, I wasn't as experienced. My knowledge base wasn't experienced, but I just took a chance. And so how did I get into this company? Again, luck happens a lot. So it turns out there was a young man that was working in the office with me. He had a relationship with the HR manager at this big company. It was not my relationship. And this guy was a penny stock trader. He didn't know the first thing about retirement planning or anything like that. So I had a meeting with the branch manager and this guy says to me, he was probably 24, penny stock trader, but he had this access. And so he came to me and he said, Aaron, I understand you're the seminar queen. How would you like to get in front of all these people? And I'm like, I'm in. I'm, I just moved to Texas like three months earlier. So having that background and not being afraid to speak in public. So we went in and I ended up splitting all the business with him. It was kind of a bad thing because he didn't show up for any of the events. He didn't take any of the appointments. I think he went to Cabo and he made a million bucks off of what I did, but it was a wonderful opportunity. And so I was grateful that he was the one that helped me get that. So again, sometimes it's being prepared for the right moment. And I was prepared to go in and do that. And also I teach advisors these days and I was on a call with a couple of advisors yesterday. And this one guy admitted, he goes, Aaron, I feel like I lack confidence. And I said, you know what? It doesn't matter. Do it anyway. I mean, do you think I had the confidence as a, I don't know how old I was, 32 year old girl to get in front of these people with millions of dollars. And I didn't have any confidence, but I did it anyways. Fake it till you make it. Yeah, it sounds like you. every kind of event led to another one. So you developed a passion and a skill for public speaking. And then when you saw an opportunity, you said yes, instead of I got to figure this out or I got to study it or I'm worried about failing. It was let's take a shot. It's, it's an opportunity and I think I could be successful. And it seems like that's kind of been the guiding force behind a lot of your career and your success. So thank you for sharing that. And then the other clarifying question I had, obviously, when you're at AG Edwards, you were an employee of the firm, and that seemed to be some of the rub and not getting the right resources. But then from when you joined Lincoln Financial up until you retired, you were an independent advisor, correct? You ran your own company? 
Pretty much. Lincoln was kind of a hybrid. Some of the others were hybrids. But finally, when I got to LPL, I will say that I was completely independent. But that has its pros and cons, right? And I also was talking to an advisor yesterday, encouraging him to go independent. I forget that you have to get office space and buy desks and buy computers. And I mean, there's a lot that you have to do. So I was fortunate that when I left AGI, in my mind, there wasn't a true independent model. There was sort of hybrids of independence. And so I sort of was able to wander into it slowly versus jump off a cliff and go hang my own shingle, which is what a lot of people do these days. Right. So hybrid meaning they they provided some infrastructure that you're part of an insurance company. So there are some benefits and resources as opposed to when you moved to LPL where it was truly you were running your own show and you provided all of your own infrastructure. Correct. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. So what was the motivation behind joining LPL? It seems like you're at large broker dealers, publicly traded ones, very, very small ones, employee firms. So what made you land at LPL, which was ultimately where, where your career finished up? Well, I think I told you I started, I ended up at this very small broker deal because, okay, let's think about this. At one point, I was with FSC Securities, another great, great firm. I loved my time at FSC. But during the 2008 financial crisis, FSC was a division of AIG. And everybody that's my age, maybe even your age, will remember AIG had some significant problems. And so it appeared they consolidated all five broker dealers under the AIG network. And what happened was here, we were in this major financial crisis. I was a top producer. I was one of the top producers in all five of their broker dealers. And yet I'm needing to get information and emails and things out to my clients and because real estate market has collapsed. And they were thinking at the time that a weak turnaround for compliance was okay. They were scrambling for resources and they were cutting costs and cutting employees and things because they had to, they had to stay alive. So I think they combined all of compliance out of one office in Arizona or something. And so it was untenable for me. I couldn't wait a week or even three or four or five days to get an approval for compliance. So I had to leave. I said, I can't operate under these circumstances. And so I ended up, I'll call it a mistake. I went with a very, very, very small broker dealer out of Iowa, which this guy had started his own thing. And again, it was wonderful. Everything looks great at the time, but he got into trouble because of that 2008 financial crisis too. His troubles didn't show up until much later. And I thought, hmm, I don't want to go down with his ship, right? And so I looked around. I said, I've got to go with the biggest name out there. I've got to go with something very, very stable. So I chose LPL. Again, that was a very good decision. But I guess I want to say I feel like an idiot. Sometimes it's like I made decisions based on the information I had at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as you're making decisions in business, especially when you're an independent, you make decisions based on the information you have sitting right in front of you. And that's all you can operate off of. Right. And you got to trust your gut sometimes. Sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. So let's talk about the business you built. So Botsford Financial, can you talk about the team size that you had, the focus of the business, and anything else just to give us some perspective on the terrific company that you created? Yeah, I think it would be helpful to go back and tell one little story. And that is, everything wasn't always roses for me, Lewis. I struggled, even at all these different companies, I struggled And a lot of it was struggling with self-esteem. A lot of it was, geez, this is just hard. So I remember at one point, my branch manager said, why don't you go get some business coaching? So I enrolled in a coaching program and I just, I embraced it wholeheartedly. So something happened on the 12th session of my coaching program. We'd go four times a year. It's the third year. And our coach said, stand up and I want you to report your progress, find somebody in the class to report progress to. And I was like, okay, great. So I stood up and I saw this random guy standing there and I said, Hey, you want to do the exercise together? He goes, yeah, I go. So I said, I'm going to go first. I was really excited about my progress. And so I said, three years ago, when I started, I was doing around $300,000 in production. And I said, today, this year, I'm on target to somewhere between 400 and 450. And I'm thinking to myself, like, woohoo, like, look at me. And then it was his turn to go. And he said, hey, he said, I'm an advisor too. And he said, three years ago, I was doing around 300,000 in production. And I'm thinking to myself, well, look at that. We're just alike. And then this guy said the words that I will never forget. He said, this year, I'm on target to do 3 million in production. 
And he said, I don't meet with any of my existing clients anymore. I built this whole team around me. And all I do is I go out and prospect for new business. And, and of course, his voice started trailing off because in my head, I'm going, what? I'm like, you went from 300,000 to 3 million in three years? And he goes, yep. And you don't meet with all your clients for the quarterly review? Nope. And so, of course, the, the bell rings. Our coach says, time to go back and start class again. And I swear to God, I kept thinking, oh my God, I mean, did I miss a coaching session or did he go to another coaching program on Mars? I just couldn't imagine having those kind of results. And so I was stammering and stuttering. I'm like, is there any chance, could I just buy a few hours of your time? And this guy was so gracious. He said, yeah, why don't you come spend the day with me and my team? So I got home and I made Bob, my husband, Bob, and I made him come with me because I knew this guy to get those kind of results. I was certain this guy was going to say, well, Aaron, if you want to have that kind of success in business, you're probably going to have to divorce Bob. You're going to have to sell your firstborn child. I just knew there was going to be this big cost to it. When in fact, it wasn't that way at all. In fact, a lot of what this guy and I talked about is what I teach my advisors. A lot of my success came after that one day. And there are so many lessons to be learned from that one day one being, you know what, your mind can conceive, it can achieve. So this guy said, on your way home, Aaron, he said, write out at your goals. So on my way home, I wrote out, okay, well, someday I literally said, I want to have two offices and I want to have seven conference rooms filled with clients of my firm and I'm not in any of them. Well, that's exactly what ended up happening. So you asked the question, what did my business look like at the end? Well, I had an office in Dallas and one in Atlanta. I had seven conference rooms filled with clients of my firm, and I wasn't in any of them. And what's really interesting, Lewis, is now in hindsight, what I try and teach my advisor students is, I wish that on that plane ride home, I wish I would have said, I want to have 20 offices with 70 conference rooms filled with clients of my firm, because what I've realized now, whatever your mind can conceive, it can achieve, it's kind of the, like the universe delivers on that because you get focused on that. So I think a lot of people in our industry in particular, I think we think too small. So I have an entire course just on the mindset of achievement. And what I love about it is I take people through my journey. Again, I lived in poverty. I went through hell. I went through a criminal trial where I was charged with involuntary manslaughter. I went through a civil trial. I mean, my upbringing was just not ideal, but yet look at where I ended up. And I think that I try to give them discipline of training your thoughts to go where you want to go. So it begins with your thoughts. Anybody listening to this podcast, you can become and you can have any size business you want. You just have to determine what that is. And when you get a real clear picture of where you want that business to go, it's kind of like the universe will lead you there. And I don't know how else to say it, but I've found that to be true. It's absolutely amazing. Based upon what you're saying, the 10xing mindset, it sounds like the program was strategic coach. Is that the coach that you were working with? Yes, I have nothing but great things to say about it. Yeah, terrific. And I love that, that it was one day that really changed your life. And writing down the goals and just putting it out there to the universe, that became the guiding path. It kind of became your magnet for success. That's absolutely amazing. And again, starting from very humble beginnings and building it to what you did. So you mentioned by the end of your career as a practicing financial advisor, you met your goal. You had multiple offices, seven conference rooms filled with clients, and you weren't in any of them, meaning you made yourself unnecessary to the business, which is ultimately, I know it's a strategic coach concept, kind of the self-managing company is the ultimate goal. That's the pinnacle. I think a lot of advisors feel that way. So what did your team look like? How did you build this team and assemble it so that clients weren't asking about where's Aaron, where's Aaron, where's Aaron, and you're able to kind of go and do your thing? Right. Well, I started off when I came back from my one day with this guy, I had one part-time assistant. I shared her with three or four other guys. And I remember saying to her, okay, here's the deal. I'm going to go out and bring in new business and you're going to do everything else. And this girl was 20 years old, right out of college. She'd graduated in three years. And fortunately for me, we were both young enough and naive enough. She said to me, okay. So I kind of set my mind on my job is going to be prospecting and marketing the services of our firm. So I ended up hiring her away. I got her full time. So she was my first employee and then we needed somebody to back her up. So I, I always try and get advisors. If you can have two people, one that's licensed 
and one that's not licensed. The unlicensed person answers the phone, does all the administrative things, schedules appointments, right? So that's the only thing you need to really get started on this journey. And so I always say it's worth the investment. Now, I'll back up and say it's worth the investment if you can become a master at prospecting and closing prospects of any size at your first meeting. So that's what I teach advisors how to do. I teach advisors how to move up market, how to find higher net worth clients and have the skill set to close them in the first meeting. Okay. Because if you can do that, if you can master that one skill set, then you can build something. If you can't hunt and you can't close, you can't afford a team, right? It's just basic 101. So from that one person, so it ended up, I have a three-part transition. So we would get a lot of business in and eventually I would have this person sit, she would first sit in on meetings with me. And when I came back from my one day with this guy, Paul, from that day forward, I was never in a meeting by myself. Why? That's how I trained everybody. I wanted them to hear client questions, what kind of objections they might have, how did I overcome the objections. So if there's one takeaway from this podcast to give to an advisor, a lot of them have support staff but their support staff are never in the meeting, never on the Zoom call, never on the phone call. And in my mind, that is the biggest mistake you can make because how are they going to learn? How do you teach them to give the same answers that you would give if they don't hear you? So from that day forward, I always had a person in the room. At first it was Kaylin. I'm feel free to say her name. She's a rock star in the industry. And after that, it was another guy named Kyle. I mean, it ended up one at a time. We hired about one new person a year for a number of years. And that's because I was a master prospector. I was a master hunter and closer. And what's interesting, Lewis, is that I didn't know that. Okay. I just have a natural ability. And so I was in unconsciously competent. Because let me tell you, at the time, there wasn't a lot of training out there to do what I did. I figured it out. And so what's really cool is the course that I teach right now, I just let people copy. If you say these words, the prospect will say yes, right? So now I've created something where people can just copy or model what I did unconsciously. And so that's how I built my team out, just probably a new employee a year. And then I teach advisors, again, there's a three-part transition and I'll briefly go through it. And that is you just subdivide your client base into A, B, C, maybe even D, okay? And you don't start putting these people in front of your A clients in year one. So year one is, they first of all, year one, they sit in on all your meetings with you. And when you get done with the meeting, you ask that employee what happened in that meeting. You don't tell them what happened in the meeting. You ask them, did they recognize? And so they have to articulate back to you, well, when you suggested this, the client had some questions and you came back and said that, right? I want them to hear the conversations and I want them to be able to articulate back to me what they heard. So year one is all about listening, training, understanding, getting the drift. So year two begins the transition. So now in your C clients or D clients, I actually had some D clients and they were very nice people that were loyal to me and I didn't want to fire them. And so, but it wasn't a good use of my time to meet with them quarterly or semi-annually or whatever. So Year one, the first meeting, here's what happens. I'm meeting with a C client. We run the meeting exactly the way we did the year before. I'm running the meeting. This person's taking notes. So quarter later, six months later, whenever the next meeting is, all we do is we shift seats. Now think about it, Lewis. My clients, these C clients, they've been used to now for a year and a half, this person being in the meeting, because this person also does all the follow-ups. They send all the paperwork. They do everything after the meeting. So they're very familiar with this person sitting in on meetings. This time, we're just going to change seats, and this person's going to run the meeting. So I might say, Kyle's going to run the meeting. And I'm sitting there in the room, and if the client looks over at me, or if Kyle recommends something, the client looks over at me, I might just quietly nod my head, sort of giving my affirmation. And then the third meeting of that year, I am just conveniently late. So the meeting <laughs> is scheduled. Kyle's running the meeting. Again, these are C clients. These are people that have been with me a long time. So then the absolute key is what I'm going to tell your audience next. This is like printing money. When I walk in the room, by the way, I never lied. I never said, I'm sorry, I was stuck on the freeway. I was on the phone. I would just say, I'm sorry, I'm late. Okay, because I don't believe in lying to clients or anybody. 
I'd walk in and go, oh my gosh, hey, how's it going? And again, I'd walk in when the meeting should be about three quarters of the way done. Let's say 45 minutes in the meeting. I'd walk in, open the door, and then I'd say, how's it going? Oh, so nice to see you. And then I would look for a signal from my advisor. And they would take their pen. And if everything was going really great, clients had no objections, they were getting the results they expected to get, they would take their pen and they would put it on the right-hand side of their piece of paper. Okay, I know this is crazy, but it works. Now, if they could use a little help, if they'd recommended something, the client's like, I don't think I want to do that, or there was some kind of objection, then the employee, the advisor would take their pen and they would lay it across their piece of paper sideways so I could see it. So I would just look for that signal. And if they laid it across their piece of paper, what that said to me is I could use a little help. And I'd look for the signal. And if I saw that, I'd be like, hey, so what are you guys talking about? Do you mind if I sit in? So then my advisor could raise the objection. Well, we were recommending that they put money in X, Y, or Z. And they have some questions about that. I'm like, oh, really? So tell me what your questions are. So I could recover that sale or I could overcome that objection. And again, that's how I trained all of my people. They heard me overcome the objection. And that was it. So after three meetings, I was never in another meeting. So I, first, I always started with my C clients. Couple of years, then I went to my B clients. By the end, I had the meeting with all my A clients. And by the end, I just I said to people as I'm prospecting, I'm like, here's the deal: what you're buying is you're buying the philosophy of my firm. You're not buying Aaron Bosford. Lay out how we think about money, but nobody gets me. You have to understand, nobody gets me. And I would lay out why that's in their best interest. I said, hey, I travel all the time, and if you find out I got hit by a Mack truck, I don't want you to think, oh my gosh, what's going to happen to my money? I want you to know that I want you and your family here with my firm for the rest of your lives and the lives of your children. So you're buying the philosophy of my firm. And that's how I sold it. So let's call it the last five or six years. I agree with you. That's complete gold and extremely actionable. I think everyone who's listening, even myself, can relate to those tactics. So it's not just the flip of the switch and you're throwing new advisors in with clients. It's very intentional. It takes a lot of time and intentionality on your part to bring them into the meetings, be on calls, sit in with them. And then you kind of test them. You kind of throw them to the wolves, see what happens, and then they're off to the races. That's absolutely incredible. And I mean, you became a Barron's Top 100 Advisor, which is an absolutely incredible accomplishment. I was going to ask you what your secret to success was, but I think you've you already hit on that. It's building <laughs> a rock star team and empowering them and making yourself able to go out and do what was your unique ability, which was meeting with clients and growing the firm and then leaving the planning and the investments and the rest of the work to your team, but it wasn't in a way that the clients were disadvantaged. It was still your methodology and in your blueprint. So I absolutely love that. And you mentioned a key employee, Kaylin Mayhew. I know now she's a real leader in the industry. Can you just talk briefly about where she came in and how ultimately she helped your business? (laughs) Sure. She is the smartest person I know. I think she's the smartest person I've ever met. And she came in and again, she was part-time at the very beginning. I think Lincoln hired her and she started working for me part-time. When I came home with my one day with Paul is when I went to the manager at Lincoln said, I'd like to pay for her hundred percent. She was 20 years old. She'd graduated college in three years. She had the single greatest work ethic of anybody I've ever met. Anybody's ever worked with me. And the other thing too, is she has a unbelievable memory And she ended up, she wanted to specialize in estate planning. So we actually brought in an attorney and we both sat in all these meetings and the attorney taught us estate planning 101 to 501. She became a certified estate planner and whatever. But, you know, it didn't take long that she'd been with me about five years and we had a discussion about our future together. So she ended up becoming an equity owner in my company. And that was a very good thing for me and I think for her. And she ended up running the whole business. And so I think that was really good because I think by the time I sold my company five years ago, I think Kaylin was probably in her early 40s. I don't know, not exactly sure, but she was well positioned to go into her new company, Merit, and just run the heck out of it. I mean, she is an industry rock star. She's, Louis, she's way smarter than me. I mean, on every single front, she's way smarter than me. So I'll take credit for being her mentor. And I think she learned some things about like the way we treat our clients, that we don't lie. We never lie to a client and say we're late, that we're stuck in traffic. And I think from a 
ethics perspective. I poured into her my belief system and uh, she's amazing. And anybody that was lucky enough to work with her or for her, I can't say enough about her. So I was lucky to have her on my team. She, I'll give her 90% credit for allowing me to do what I needed to do to reach the heights that I reached. So it was a team effort. Yeah, I think it, everyone kind of looks for their Kaylin, their right hand and their person that could take the reins. In a prior meeting, I remember you sharing with me that you took a sabbatical and you're very, you're very philanthropic. So I would love to hear about that. But I know when you said when you, you stepped away for a very long period of time, you came back and things were still kind of running as you had left them. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that's probably the most scary thing for a business owner, for an advisor, for really any human is letting go of control and kind of trusting what you built to function without you. Yeah, you are absolutely right. <laughs> so what I had done, Lewis, is my first book was called The Big Retirement Risk, Running Out of Money Before You Run Out of Time. And that was my book for the re my retail audience. And I just wanted to write a book. And so shortly after that, I wrote another book called Seven Figure Firm, How to Build a Financial Services Company That Grows Itself. And really and truly, before I published it, I wanted to make sure, am I telling the truth? Is that, Telling the truth is super important to Aaron Botsford, okay? And I wanted to make sure that before I let it go, I, my company was running itself. So Bob and I decided to take six months off. So we ended up, we went to India for a month on like safari and all over India. We went to China for a month. We went to Africa for a month. And we can talk more about the orphanage I support and what I do with my money today. And the reason I went to these other places, I wanted to go far enough away that when the office was open, I was asleep and vice versa. Because if, if I was just in Europe, they could contact me. Then Got to take away the temptation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was scary. I remember being on this cruise. We went with some clients on this trip to China. And I remember after about three weeks, I'm sitting in a room and my client is holding my hands going, Aaron, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Because <laughs> we'd gone three weeks and I'd done so well, not checking in and not whatever. But still, it was like leaving my baby. Are they taking good care of my baby, right? And fortunately, I, had to tr I trusted Kaylin implicitly. And I trusted my team. So, and then Bob and I took the summer off. So that was between 2015 and 16. And we ended up having a record year. And so I came back and gosh, I was so proud of them. And think about it. They were really proud of themselves. And so I also try and train advisors like, what, do you have to take all the credit for everything? How about giving a little credit to the people who work for you, support you. So I was so proud of them and they were proud of themselves. And so, but essentially, Lewis, I kind of worked myself out of a job. <laughs> so in 2016 or 17, I started getting asked to give industry speeches. And truthfully, before that, Lewis, I, I didn't see any reason to do an industry speech. I was like, why would I want to train my competitors, right? So the first speech, they were offering $10,000 for a one-hour speech. And I said to Bob, I'm like, you know what, for $10,000, I could pick up the phone and call a client and make $10,000. I don't need to get on a plane to go do that. So I woke up in the middle of the night. All my big thoughts come to me around 3.29 in the morning. And I woke up and I thought, I said to Bob the next day, I said, well, how about if every time I gave one of these speeches, how about if we gave half the money or 50% of the money to the orphanage that we support? And of course, my husband was like, oh my gosh, that's a great idea. So suddenly I had purpose to get on a plane. So... Before my very first speech, I think it was January 2017 or something, at 3.29 in the morning the night before, <laughs> I woke up and I put up, I added one slide to my deck and it said, come spend the day with me and my team. And I was going to charge $3,000. And I thought that one day, for me, spending that one day with Paul was so valuable. So I wonder if that would appeal to anybody else. And so at that first speech, I had 18 advisors sign up to come spend the day with me. And I'm like, oh my gosh. I came back to my team and I'm like, oh my gosh, we have 18 people coming. Like, I didn't have a program. I had nothing. I didn't, but I'm a 10 quick start, Lewis. So, you know, that's about how I operate. So a couple weeks later, I created a program and I started having advisors come. They spent one day with me. And literally all I did was I paraded my team members because the biggest thing advisors now I know is... They don't have large teams and they don't empower the people that work for them. So 
I would start with the receptionist and I had her come in. This is what I do for the firm. And then I had an advisor. This is what I do for the firm. I had my HR manager. This is what I do for the firm. I had Kaylin call in from Atlanta and talk about the history and what she did for the firm. So I'll probably expose them to 15 out of my 18 employees at the time so they could get a grasp on what other people can be doing for them. So I also gave them, after they were gone, and they were, of course, overwhelmed after one day, I gave them two hours of time with any member of my staff. They could pick which ones, the marketing people, they could pick whatever they want, but they had to submit their questions in advance just to be respectful of those people's time and everything. Well, the questions started coming in. They started spending time and I realized, Louis, they all have the same questions. They all have the same issues. And I was able to sort of narrow those things down into, let's call it five broad categories. So then at the time, again, everything happens for a reason. At the time, I was actually taking an online course. So every summer, it's hotter than hell here in Texas. And so I would always take summertime, anybody who had money in Texas, they were gone. And they were on vacation. Your clients don't want to hear from you. They want to have time with their kids. So I made it a point that every summer I studied something new. I wanted to, it might be physical fitness. I might do a fitness challenge or it might be an industry thing. I might do some every summer. And I got up early and I was taking this online course on how to create an online course. Because I thought, I wonder if I could take all of this information, these broad categories. It seems like it would make sense that people without even leaving their homes, they could listen to my voice. They could learn from me. And that seemed like an interesting thing to do. So I'm taking an online course on how to create an online course. In the end of the summer, I was like, this is way, too, way over my head. I can't do this. I was so overwhelmed by the technology. And I was like, oh my gosh. And so I called the company. I go, do you have anybody who could help me like create this course? And they're like, nope. <laughs> so my little dream started falling apart. And I was like, oh. So this is around 2016, 17. And lo and behold, one day I... By this time, Lewis, I only went into the office if I had a prospect meeting. That was the only purpose for me to go in. So there was something on the calendar and I walked in thinking this was going to be a prospect. And I said to my assistant, like, who is this person? And this person, my assistant goes, oh, it's an advisor. He's looking for a job. And I'm like, what? I don't have any positions. Like, what am I doing here? I was not happy. So I walk in and there's this guy named Mike, an advisor, and he is relatively new to Texas and he's looking to join another firm. And I just wasn't in the mindset of hiring anybody at that point, but I wanted to redeem the time. I didn't want to insult him and say, go away or whatever. So I said, Mike, let me tell you something. Let me show you what I've been thinking of because he's an advisor and I wanted his opinion. Would you find value in creating and going through an online course? And these are going to be my topics. First, I want them to get really clear, the mindset of achievement, the stuff that Paul and I talked about. And then I want them to become master, like superstar in terms of hunting. I want them to move up market. I want them to, so I, I want to teach them my secret sauce. How do they find high net worth people? How do they close them? And then I want them to become super prospecting and marketing people. And I mean, so I laid out these five broad categories to this guy, Mike, to get his reaction. Would you be interested in something like that as an advisor? And he's like, oh my gosh, not only would be, I'd be interested. He goes, but Aaron, he goes, I've already done that. And I'm like, what are you talking about? What do you mean you've already done that? Well, turns out Mike is super talented. He also happens to be a martial arts expert. And he created an online course to teach personal defense. I'm like, are you serious? So like, you know how to do the mechanics of the online? Oh yeah, I've already done that. And so again, you call it kismet, whatever. I always think of everything as a God thing. And so he brings this guy in front of me and the next day we were off to the races. And so he spent literally, because he was an advisor, he knew our language. He spent two solid years in every meeting with me, every client, every prospect meeting, every team meeting. And he just recorded what exactly I was doing, because again, I was unconsciously competent. And it was great to have him because he was like, oh my gosh, Aaron, I wish I would have known that when I was an advisor. If I would have known that, I could have closed more business. I would have known that. So it took us two years to create this course. And then we went live with it in January, 2019. And it's been amazing. And the results advisors are getting is just 
off the charts. And so I'm so proud of what we created. And again, all I do is I take the money so far in this endeavor, Bob and I support 500 children and we give 50% of the profits for this company to not, we not only support now the one charity, now we've expanded to many other charities. I'm primarily focused on supporting orphans in many different countries. So, so that's what we do. Oh my goodness. <laughs> That was a lot of wisdom packed in, and then you wrapped it up with the bow, which was the number of children you support through through the coaching program. That's absolutely incredible. The coaching program is called the Elite Advisor Success System, correct? Right. And I want to differentiate. This is not a coaching program because I did spend 15 years in strategic coach, and so I know what a coaching program looks like. This is a modeling program. And so actually a lot of my students, they do both. They do my program and they go to some kind of a coaching program because a coaching program helps you become accountable to maybe somebody else, accountable to yourself. So I want to make that differentiation. Mine is, it takes six months to learn everything I know. And then people stay on with me and they go through what we call mastery. And mastery is, yeah, I can teach you everything you need to know in six months. And all literally, Lewis, they get an email from me every Monday morning. And it says, this week, I want you to study this. And literally, I make it so simple. They can just tee. They can tee up a recording while they're walking their dog, where they're on a treadmill. It takes about an hour to hour and a half a week to not only listen, but then start implementing what they're learning along the way. So it's copying something that already works. The difference in coaching is I used to go and they would say, my coach would say, you need systems and processes. And I'd have a blank piece of paper and I'd be like, go. In my case, I'll say, yes, you need a birthday process. You need a system and process for sending birthday cards to all your clients. Here's the system. Here's the process. Give it to your team. Make adjustments for your broker dealer or whatever. But here it is. Every single thing that happens in a business, there's a system and a process around it. And one of the reasons I tell them you have to have that, you have to have it documented, is because if you don't, then your team can literally come and put a gun to your head. You know what? I had no idea. How do I send a birthday card? I had people that did that. And I was always afraid, oh my gosh, what if they come to me and they say, well, if, unless you pay me another 10 grand a year, I'm leaving. I mean, I didn't want that. So everything has to be documented. So I give them the original documentation. You can morph it to your style. Every single thing that you do, how to get in front of a high net worth prospect, when you get in front of this person or these people, the exact words to say to get them to say yes to you in the first meeting. So it's my program. Again, I don't want to call it a coaching program. I call it a modeling program because it's very prescriptive. There's nothing left to chance and it's very quick. If they take it seriously, we have lots of guys that are going to 10 times their business in three years because this is not rocket science. Yeah, it's just taking a very successful model. So let's back up a little bit. This will be the last segment of questioning. So in order to focus, we'll say mostly full-time on the Elite Advisor Success System, because you did make yourself irrelevant in your business after your sabbatical, you decided to merge or sell your business to what's now a mega RA acquirer called Merit Financial, ran by a gentleman named Rick Kent. Can you talk a little bit about the transaction process? When you were going out to sell the business, I guess, first off, how do you know you wanted to sell the business? And then what was your criteria when thinking through who the right buyer or merger partner would be? Yeah. So this is a long story too, but Lewis, I've been working since I was 11 years old. When my dad died, left my mom penniless. I bought everything I've ever owned since I was 11. So I'd been in this business for like 30 years. And I thought, I wonder if there's anything else in life to do besides work. So I put it out there. I met a guy who was kind of a business broker. And I thought, well, I didn't even know what anybody would pay for the business necessarily, right? So I put it out there and I actually ended up right away in early 2017, I had two offers on the business and both of them were essentially the same amount of money. And because, I mean, they both valued the company at, based on what was there and all that. So I was getting ready. In fact, Kaylin, I had had her, she was in another coaching program. And I showed her the two offers. I needed to make a decision. And then my son and daughter-in-law, my daughter-in-law got pregnant with their third son, but they ended up with a fatal diagnosis. So they came to us and they said, this baby is very, very badly deformed. They could tell that within 10 weeks. And they recommended that they get an abortion, get an abortion, get an abortion. But my son and daughter-in-law are very staunch Christians. And they're like, they're not going to be any abortion in their world. So 
I had to be prepared. I had two other grandsons and the deformities in this baby got worse and worse and worse over the time. And so in June, my son called me. So I put a hold on the sale. Both companies, I'm like, guys, it's it's been great, but I'm making a ton of money. And I know my son and daughter are going to need a lot of help. So I'm just going to keep the company. Well, lo and behold, Louis, they ended up having a miracle happen. There's nothing short of a miracle. My son called me in June and said, Mom, I guess I have good news, bad news. They said the baby has no connective tissue between his lungs and his rib cage. He doesn't have to breathe in utero, but when he's born, he won't be able to breathe, so he's going to die at birth. And I have to tell you, that outcome at that point was, I was relieved because the other outcome was so bad, right? So I said, okay, honey, today we'll just... Let's plan to, let's celebrate your two children, your two healthy children, and we'll make plans to bury your baby and we'll all move on with our lives. And so we we made plans to bury our baby. That was June 23rd of 2017. And on August 12th, their baby was born two weeks early, perfectly fine, perfectly healthy. Wow. So there's no other way to explain it. It was a miracle. Say what you want about that. But anyway, we're like, oh my gosh. So they didn't need any help. It was a very odd time. So I'm thinking, okay, well, maybe I can sell my company now. So I got back with the two guys that were, I had made the offer. They were still very interested because they loved the idea that my business ran without my day-to-day involvement. I mean, who's not going to like that, right? So Kaylin was in a coaching program and I had Kaylin with me in every single meeting because again, she's brilliant. And if there was any, anything I needed to think through or whatever, she came with me to all the meetings. And I, I said to her, Kaylin, which of these offers, where do you want to work? And I said, both offers are the same amount of money to me. So it's important to me that you're happy with the outcome. So she said, well, I'm in this coaching program. Would you mind if I shared the offers with some of the people in my coaching program? I go, no, I'm an open book. Go ahead. Well, it ended up one of the people in her coaching program was Rick Kent. So he had a chance to look over both of these offers. And Rick is an amazing man, stand-up guy. Here he had seen both offers. And he ended up coming back to me and offered me even more than these two. And Kaylin had had a long-standing relationship with him through this coaching program. The actual coach called me up and said, Aaron, I know this guy. He is like super quality. And Lewis, in the Bible, there's a the number seven. Seven is a number representing completion in the Bible. And what was interesting is seven weeks after the day my grandson, that miracle happened, seven weeks to the day, I closed on my transaction with Rick Kent. So that part of my life was completed. So anyway, that's how the story played out. What a journey. And thank goodness that your grandson is thriving mm-hmm. and is healthy. That's such an amazing story. Yeah, he's five years old now and he is hes a piece of work. He's got a little attitude going, but you know, he's a five-year-old. And he's, this is a really crazy thing, Lewis. That child's never been sick. I shouldn't say that. He's sick right now. They got some kind of a flu going on in their house. But he's five years old and he's never been sick. This child who is going to have diminished lung capacity, it's been it's just been crazy. That's incredible. You got to be thankful for what you have. And it seems like, I mean, the very amazing thing about your business was you're in a position to be there to support your family. I mean, obviously still are, but it did, I guess, free you up to be able to move on to Act Two, which is the advisor modeling program. So one more question for you. Many advisors really struggle about thinking on their own succession plan. It's hard, right? To give up control, to give up what they love, to give up what's given them an income and to trust that it's all going to work out. How did you get comfortable with that? You know what? Even back in my one day with that guy, Paul, which was 20 years earlier, 17, 18 years earlier, I wanted to get really clear on an exit. What is that going to look like someday? One of the things, because my father left us destitute, making sure that my son, my husband, all these advisors, for some reason, they think that they get to live forever. They think that they get to live till 99. They think all of these things. And here we do planning for other people, but we rarely, advisors rarely plan for their worst case scenario, which is next March, they have a stroke and they can't work for a year. So not only what happens to their business, their clients, their employees, their family, they just never really think through that until it happens. Now, case in point, the day Rick bought my company, I'm told he bought another woman's firm. I'm told she had about the same amount of revenue as me or whatever. And unfortunately for her, her business totally depended on her to meet with every client. She had a team, but apparently she met with all these clients. Unfortunately for her, she'd had a massive stroke and she had to sell. 
Well, because those clients were all dependent on meeting with her, that's a huge risk to the business, right? So I'm told that she got something like 25 cents on the dollar compared to the check I got to offset the risk that those clients, once they realized they couldn't meet with the leader, the head of the business, they'd leave. What's tying them to the buyer? So I think that once people get clear on the vulnerability that is called life, it makes it a little easier to say, okay, what if next year or three years from now, something happened in my life? Because I wanted to protect the value of the business for my husband. He was with me. My husband came to the office with me. He's an airline pilot. But he ended up, he flew for the first 11 years of my career, he never took a day off. So he would fly maybe Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and he was with me in the office Monday through Thursday. He helped me with bookkeeping. He helped with filing. He did everything. So 11 solid years of us working together, this was something he built too. And I wanted to protect the value of the company for him too. And what about my son, Kevin, who I went into the business, my son was five I was out breakfast, lunch, cocktails, dinner, breakfast, lunch, cocktails, dinner. I missed baseball games. I missed basketball games. I sacrificed and my son sacrificed so that Aaron Botsford could to build a business. So how dare I not take into consideration, like I had a buy-sell agreement with Kaylin backed up by life insurance. I wanted to make sure that the value of the business was protected for my family. And so a lot of these advisors have got to really think hard and say, okay, what's my business going to be worth if I can't be there? So that was my primary driving factor in creating a business that ran without me. And I'll give you one example that Paul and I discussed in our one day together. And I teach all my advisor students this. Our business is one of the very few. We get to hang a shingle, open an office, do it from remotely, whatever. The barriers to entry in our business are so low. You go past the series seven, right? And I said, what if instead of getting into our business where our income is absolutely unlimited, I said, what if we decided instead to become a business owner, we're going to invest in McDonald's franchises. So we buy, we said, I'm going to really do this big. So we have a franchise McDonald's in the north of our town, in the south of our town, in the east of our town, and in the west of our town. And I asked my advisor students, okay, in which one of those locations would you be in the back flipping burgers? And the answer, of course, none of them, right? Because flipping burgers is the work of the business. Now, why is that so different from our industry? I've never had the CEO of UPS show up with a package at my door. So unfortunately, advisors, because a lot of their ego is tied to what they know, one of the biggest problems that we have is, I always tell advisors, if you have to be the smartest person in the room, if that's a requirement for your ego, the problem is that means you always have to be in the room. So if you cannot allow other people to shine, that's going to greatly diminish what you can build. And so, Louis, that part wasn't hard for me because I'm not the brightest bulb in the chandelier. I'm not the smartest. I'm never the smartest person in the room. And I'm okay with that. I'm a good storyteller and that's, it's a key to winning over prospects. So I'm really good at the small piece that I did in the business and I had no problem. And I would build up these people that work for me. Everybody that met in the room with a client of mine, Kyle was the smartest person I've ever met. Kaylin is the smartest person I've ever met. Blaine is the smartest person because in their own way, they really are. <laughs> One person that was interviewing me said, yeah, they were the smartest person in the room because they went to work for you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, well, <laughs> absolutely incredible. Well, I hope I can take your, your modeling program. I don't know how it's going to be completely germane to my business, but I would love to be able to get more of your expertise and we'll make sure to put the link to sign up or preview your, your program on the episode page. That'd be awesome. Aaron, this has been an absolute thrill. It's been a blast to just hear you tell your story and all your mini stories along the way. I learned a lot. I think everyone who's listening is going to walk away with not one, but multiple nuggets of wisdom. So thank you for being vulnerable, sharing your story, and really showing us who Aaron Botsford is and, and giving us a blueprint for your success. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. And Lewis, I look forward to seeing you up in Park City. Let's go ski together. Absolutely. We'll see you there. Aaron's advice is valuable to each and every advisor and business owner. And no doubt, working hard is admirable, but working smart will take you further. 
So be sure to visit this episode's webpage for a link to learn more about Erin and the Elite Advisor Success System. I thank you for listening. And I encourage you to visit our website, diamond-consultants.com and click on the tools and resources link for valuable content. You'll also find a link to subscribe for regular updates to the series. And if you're not a recipient of our weekly email, Perspectives for Advisors, click on the articles link to browse recent topics. These written pieces are an ideal way of staying informed about what's going on in the wealth management space without expending the energy that full-on exploration requires. You can feel free to email or call me if you have specific questions. I can be reached at 973-476-8578, which is my cell, or by email mdiamond at diamond-consultants.com. Please note that all requests are handled with complete discretion and confidentiality. And keep in mind that our services are available without cost to the advisor. You can see our website for more information. And again, if you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to share it with a colleague who might benefit from its content. If you're listening on the Apple Podcasts app, I'd be grateful if you gave it a store rating and a review. It will let other advisors know it's a show worth their time to listen to. This is Mindy Diamond on Independence.